Welcome to Ecobolic Radio, a listening experience dedicated to making the world stronger, one conversation at a time. Because strength is never a weakness. Welcome to Ecobolic Radio with your host, Derek Woodski. In today's episode, we welcome back strength and conditioning coach Ryan Fandley, and we go deep into the general preparatory phase of program design. And we also get into a conversation about the positives and negatives of peptides and where they may or may not be beneficial and who will benefit the most from the new and somewhat untested science. All right, Ryan's back for another episode of Ecobolic Radio. We're going to talk about peptides and general preparatory phases of strength and conditioning. That's our goal anyway, and we'll see what happens as it uh, as it transpires. <laughs> How's things been since we spoke last? Dude, it's going well, man. Uh, actually, one of, the guy, one of the guys that I coached in college was named the NFL Head Coach of the Year. It makes me feel really fucking old, but pretty cool. Um, yeah, and you, you know what? One thing I want to touch on real quick sorry i'm taking over right from the start do it uh i meant to i meant to talk about this last time on our last podcast because you made me sound really fucking sweet with your description of my military career right and you cracked that joke about the presidential pods at the end and i was cracking up and i totally forgot so i was i i absolutely am fucking sweet but not quite as fucking sweet as you made me so i was not an officer uh, you said I was an Air Force officer. I was not an officer. And all the cool shit that I did, the, the dive training, uh, the knife fighting, the seat, the close quarters combat, the special weapons, all that shit, um, I did get to do that, but I was not a tier one operator. It made me sound like one, right. uh, but I was not pararescue or anything. In fact, I was, I was a mechanic who had training and other things. So whenever, whenever they needed someone to turn a wrench but also kick ass, that was me. So – since we spoke last, how many hours of CIA interrogation did you have to go under? Oh, so many, dude. They, I mean, my phone was tapped. They like took my wife. They picked me up, picked me up in a van, threw a hood over my head. I've been in, I've been at the Pentagon since we talked last, which is, and I don't know how long now. So, but they finally released me. They're like, this douchebag doesn't know anything. They it's released cool. released you just so. in time to talk strength and conditioning again. So we're we're able to get Thank on God. with it. And Thank drugs. God. And drugs. Yeah, exactly. Let this guy out. He's got to talk about drugs and weightlifting. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Two of my yeah. favorite things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's let's start off talking a little bit. Um Actually, with the general prep. Let's let's start with the GPP side of things and then move into how you know, peptides, the good and bad of it, actually benefit or negate performance in some regards, and the benefits of not only cannabis, but also CBD oils and how they're being used by athletes as well nowadays. That sounds good to me. So GPP is like a, it's like a flash term these days. People throw it around. Um, and, you know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe you would disagree, but I think it was really Louis Simmons that kind of popularized this term for lifters. Right. Um, so like power lifters didn't really start talking about GPP until Louis. Um, but athletes, you know, your throwers, your uh, sprinters, jumpers have been doing GPP for ages. It's nothing new to them. Right. Um, so basically GPP is just, I mean, it, as the name sounds, general physical preparation. It is anything and everything that prepares you 
to train hard for your sport. Right. So, you know, if, if we look at exercises, I like to think of it on a continuum. All exercises can be put on a continuum uh, somewhere with the competitive exercise being on one end. So in your case, as a hammer thrower, hammer would be on one end as specific. And then basically anything that's not hammer goes somewhere else on the continuum. Um, some are more specific than others, for example, right? Like a, uh, doing eyebrow raises might be on the, the very general continuum, right? Because unless you're trying to throw, unless you're trying to throw blue steel at a hottie while you're twisting in the ring, you know, (laughs) eyebrow strength isn't really, you know, that big of a deal. And then there's other things that are more, they're closer to specific, but they're not totally as specific as the hammer throw. And those would be things like, uh, throwing different weighted hammers or, Olympic lifts or speed squats, things like that. And so general physical preparation encompasses everything that is foundational to training for the sport. Right. So, you know, a lot of people think it's just conditioning or running with a sled. Right. It's flexibility. It's, it's, yeah. It's unilateral work. It's the identification of prehab, rehab phases. Um, You know, I think Tudor Bompa used to use, uh, and maybe even Mel Sif and Vershansky used to use the term uh, AA or anatomical alignment as well, um, where yep. in that preparatory phase or those initiation phases of training, that would be a perfect example where somebody that maybe had had an ACL injury the year previous or maybe the nature of their sport, maybe they pitch in the MLB or some other sport where they're very one-side dominant and in that off-season is is an attempt, and and I'll leave it at that once you start to answer, but it's an attempt to reestablish a bit of a balance between the bilateral halves of the body or right and left, right? Because it really is just an attempt when you have a dominant sport athlete. Oh, absolutely. You're never going to, the whole concept of balance in the weight room, you should balance all your bench presses with rows and balance it. It's a garbage concept because the fact of the matter is the body is unbalanced at its very core. I mean, your organs, you have some organs on one side of the body and nothing on the other. You have, you know what I mean? It's like, yep. you're not a balanced individual. Um, I think about the shoulder. Everyone talks about, you know, if you're doing a lot of bench press, you should do a lot of lat pull downs or chin ups. And I'm like, Bitch, the lats are internal rotators too. So now you're packing internal rotation onto internal rotation. That's not yep. balance. It's not balance at all. <laughs> so and, anyway. And that's actually a really good point before we move into some of the specifics of GPP is I think a lot of people that are in the strength and conditioning side of things um, and want to be great strength coaches and they want to work with athletes. One of the fundamentals that I think people have to keep going back to, it doesn't matter where they got their cert. Okay. So see, so even if you have like a really good industry certification, like the NSCA or the CSCS, which is sort of pretty much the standard for collegiate strength and conditioning as we know it. Um, when we look at a cert that's that well established, so you, you get that the reality is you don't have to have a physiology degree to get that certification. So if that's the case, I always tell people, you got to go back and study your anatomy. 
Because if you mm-hmm. don't understand how the muscles are pulling on the bones or how the different muscle patterns and, and, and you don't have to get into fully understanding what the different fiber types or muscle shapes are. Like I'm not even talking about that. It's more what you just said. If you know that the pec major is a horizontal abductor and a medial rotator of the humerus, but you also know that the latissimus dorsi is also a medial rotator of the humerus, you need to think about that before you just start putting push-pull movements in an agonist-antagonist pattern, right? Like you have to think about what's actually happening. Exactly. And so basically what I like to do is GPP is basically everything that's not your sport. If your sport is a linear, like a sprinting sport, so let's, let's say you're a 100-meter sprinter. Um, and you predominantly just go straight ahead. I'll do some like lateral based movement during the GPP phase uh, because you're you're training. Basically, any sport will get the body. Um, there will be certain patterns that are overused. So we need to do patterns opposite to those patterns in order to prevent injury, so that we keep all muscle fibers um, trained in a trained state. If that makes sense, right. because where you really run into trouble is when certain muscle groups become so dominant that they completely overpower other muscle groups. The body is meant to work together, but let's face it, certain sports are just pattern dominant and certain muscle groups have no choice but to get brutally, brutally strong. So then in the GPP phases, you work on the other part of the body, the other half of the body that's not as active in the, um, in the primary competitive movement. So an example of that, for like a, for like a power lifter uh, in an early GPP, phase i won't do anything with a barbell which people are like oh my gosh they're but they're a power lifter it's like i understand that but they use a barbell for 95 percent of the training year you know i think five percent of the year to go without a barbell and and train that way is a good way to basically just bring the body back to to ground zero where they're functioning properly their movement patterns are good we've all seen guys that only squat bench and deadlift when they walk like a lot of times it's just like a waddle Right, they don't have the coordination. Right, they don't right. train in these other patterns, and it's and it's it's an injury waiting to happen. They become so specific in pattern that everything locks down. Like, you know, what people forget when you don't have a proper balance in what the the end goal is going to be, and you could even go to the other end of the spectrum, and you could look at someone that runs marathon. And compare, say, a marathon runner, and it's not just the the physical nature of it, a marathon runner to a 100-meter runner. Like, so people immediately think, you know, light of foot, small and frail, and big, powerful sprinter. But if you take it a step further and actually look at things like hip mechanics and glute development and quadricep dominance and all those things from the pattern of movement – So marathoners have a tendency to have very shortened hip flexors and a very quad dominant stance because they're not really striding out like a hundred meter sprinter does where they develop that incredible like ass and hamstring complex and get that really long loose gait because the gait is quite short and quite compact because they're trying to conserve energy over the course of a marathon. And so even when you're dealing with sports and GPP, a runner is not just a runner, for example, a hundred meter runner and a marathon runner going to have two completely different needs in that GPP phase, not just energy system wise, but even structurally to get them into an optimal state because of the trauma of the sport they play. Yeah. And you know, another, another example of this, this is kind of, it's funny, it's sad, but, um, so I typically train in my garage, the Viper fit, but, um, I have a membership to a, to a commercial gym that has a, um, 
a tot room for little kids. If I take my daughter there, she has friends there and like to play. So sometimes I'll take her there to play and I'll just train at that gym. And up above, they have a track, and it's a short track. It's like, I want to say the straights are maybe 30 meters. So it's like if you're moving at any sort of clip, you know, you're you're leaning hard to get into the turn, right? right. And there's this one guy, he's probably, he's probably in his mid-60s, and he just he doesn't lift weights. He just goes in and he runs. Well, the track, the, the direction you go on the track is the same. So you're always, like, turning left. Well, this guy literally just standing there, his – shoulders are tilted hard to the left because that's the posture he has to adapt to run around the tiny track and it's like even when he's done running when he's walking out of the building i mean his right shoulder he's completely tilted at the t-spine his hips are shifted i'm I'm not making this up his right shoulder is probably six inches taller than his left he's just gangster leaning right and it's hard it's like it's just because that's what he does for hours on end he does marathons so he, and he trains indoors on this track and then runs one marathon a year. He's a nice guy. He's awesome. I tried to talk to him about, hey, maybe you want to you know, run on a track that goes the other way. <laughs> but, right, exactly. But, like yeah, that's, that's just a, it's, it's a classic example of adaptation. The body will adapt um, to, in a way to, to make it um, more comfortable and, and compensation patterns. That's all it is. And people that don't think that this is a reality, they think that we're exaggerating this type of compensation pattern, have to understand that in the NCAA and professional track and field levels, based on the day of the week is what determines what direction they're going to run on the track. So like everyone just assumes because races on TV basically run counterclockwise from the start line to the finish line that athletes at the world-class level always run that way. It's actually not true, right? So really good coaches know that they got to keep the, <laughs> these guys balanced out. So, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they may be running the track counterclockwise from the start to the zero, but on Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, they're running that track backwards, lean and right. And... And it's simple stuff like this that people just don't really think about because, you know, it, it, well, you get that mentality that it's, it's always been done one way. So we'll just keep doing it that way, regardless of outcome. And they're like, well, what if it causes a shortened hip flexor or a tight glute complex on the left side? Well, that's just a part of the sport. That's the old methodology mindset, right? And what you should be saying is, well, no, that, that doesn't make any sense. Let's break this dogma and let's be a little more pliable in our thinking process, which brings me to the question, like when you start taking athletes into GPP, do you initiate the process by addressing energy system needs first, or do you look at it by addressing the mechanical needs first and then try to work from there? Oh, yeah. You brought up the big elephant in the room that I definitely wanted to talk about. Somewhere along the way, maybe in 1982. Uh, I would think was, 82 sounds about right. <laughs> somewhere in 1982, aerobic work <laughs> became completely useless. Right. Um, so, and, and that was a Paul, that was a Pollockin reference whenever he tells a story. For, for the listeners out there, Charles, I have a great respect for what he's done for the industry. I worked for him for a couple of years. Derek and I toured for him. And, you know, there are a lot of redeeming things that he's done for the industry. But sometimes he also kind of talks out of his ass. And <laughs> one of the things that I disagreed about him with was a bit work. And see, whenever someone challenged him, he would always go back to the year 1982. I don't know what happened in 82, but it would always be like, well, in 82, there was a study about this. Right. And, and I've never found such study. But anyway, he, he was famous for saying, uh, 
you do not need an aerobic base uh, for strength or for power or anything like that. And I could not agree, I could not disagree more. Um, so general physical preparation, first of all, I think everyone should be doing aerobic work of some type. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean continuous aerobic work. It may be intermittent. Um, it may be the intensity may be very, very low, such as just going for a walk. But the health benefits, the benefits to the central nervous system, the recovery benefits are too great to ignore. And so the aerobic system is so critical for all things training. It's, it's basically, it's great for general health. Um, it helps with restoration of the parasympathetic tone. So we talk about like fight or flight uh, versus rest and digest. We want the athlete to shift to rest and digest. And the, the more aerobically fit they are, the better they're able to do that. Um, it's good to bring nutrients to the muscles you've trained hard. Um, it increases your work capacity, so you'll be able to do more sets when you are in the weight room. Right. Um, so it, it's and, and you can rest less between sets, so you can achieve a greater density. So there's really no reason to not include aerobic work other than sheer laziness. So what right. I tend to do uh, in a GPP phase, and of course every GPP phase is different depending on what type of athlete you're training, but I will front load aerobic work at the beginning to get them um, good at recovery and restoration first. So we train them to restore faster. Right. And then once they're better at that, then we start ramping up the intensities of things. Um, you know, and aerobic work, it doesn't just mean slogging on a treadmill for 45 straight minutes at a horribly, modestly slow speed. Right. No, it could be, um, it could be weight training. It could be a weight training circuit where your goal is to keep the heart rate in a certain range for a specific adaptation. It could right. be intermittent training, again, where it's interval-based, periods of higher intensity versus periods of lower intensity, where your, your heart rate is staying in a specific range for a specific adaptation. And that's right. why, um, yeah, I, I agree with Charles. Not everyone needs to go jogging. Um, right, but right. there should be a component of aerobic work in everyone's program. And one of the things that I've noticed, because I've been – guilty of cutting it out you know when i get busy the, the fact of the matter is i like to swing heavy shit right i like to lift yep. um, the aerobic stuff doesn't appeal to me as much however when i cut it out my joints hurt more or uh i can't do as many sets before i tank in, in my lifting uh my sleep is shittier i get fatter so it's like even though i don't love it I recognize that the benefits are so important that I have to keep it in. Well, it's interesting that you say that because like there's a number of benefits to some, you know, uh, aerobic based work for the simple fact that we know that to a certain degree. And like you say, you don't have to run on a, on a treadmill to, to do aerobic work. That's such a bastardization of the word. Right. And, and I always see people that immediately attack aerobic based conditioning as like something associated to marathoning is a way of trying to divert people from the fact that they're too fucking lazy to bring their heart rate up and keep it up for a sustained period of time. So like a couple of the arguments that you'll see some of these like traditionalists say, you know, from the post 82 era is one, it's going to jeopardize muscle gains, which we know is bullshit because if you do base level metabolic conditioning or aerobic conditioning, you're going to get a proliferation of mitochondria in the muscle, which is going to increase its ability to grow, utilize fuels, produce more change. You're also going to see 
in uh, as you say, a decrease in rest time. So your work capacity goes up. We know that volume is the greatest indicator of hypertrophy over time. Or as you would say, hypertrophy is the product of the highest amount of work that you can recover from. And then when you also look at conditioning or this fear that it's going to metabolize muscle, what you're using is the analogy of high volume marathon or distance runner workouts as your standard like how much of a of an arrogant dickhead are you to make the association <laughs> that you're a 220 pound bodybuilder with the aerobic capacity to go out and run 100 mile weeks <laughs> right? a huge dickhead is the answer a huge dickhead because all of that scientific study about catastrophic cortisol increases and testosterone loss and you know uh osteopenia and stuff like that we're talking about athletes that are doing 60 70 80 plus kilometers or miles of impact aerobic work a week and we're just blindly applying that to some guy that's putting in uh you know 25 minute metabolic stair session at the end of his workout like it's like it's the exactly. same thing you know well and the other thing too is that those marathoners don't put the intensity into the weight training. So, of course, they're not going to have as much muscle mass. And it would be silly to. You you want to weigh as little as possible if you're going to run marathons for sheer oxygen up, uptake reasons, right? Like human beings have the same size lungs, like in general. Yep. Yes, there is some differences. But in general, um, a six foot three, 270-pound dude is going to have roughly the same size lungs as, you know, a five foot, 150-pound female, okay? So... If you have the same size lungs, you're capable of bringing in the same amount of oxygen. What enables you to do more work? It's how much, where does the oxygen have to travel? If you're having to deliver oxygen to 270 pounds worth of cells, you're going to get tired a lot quicker and you're not going to be able to keep up pace. And so if your goal is marathon running, you don't want to have a lot of muscle. You should still do some lifting just for joint health. But yeah, you, you want to be tiny to run marathons right Absolutely. so that's where it's just it's, it's something that's gotten convoluted and kind of lost in the mix um the other thing that people don't talk about so eating calories raises your metabolism right, right. if you have a really high, high calorie intake for a day your metabolism will increase for that day to deal with all that food now if you also have a high energy intake okay exercise burns calories so now we're looking at a situation where you have an athlete that has a really, really high energy intake, which spikes metabolism, and a really, really high exercise volume, which also spikes metabolism. Do you think that person is going to have a hard time getting lean? Absolutely not. All right? right. That is how you get lean, by right. pushing both. And what a lot of people do, and this crosses over to the fitness things, less about athletes, a lot of people will simply slash calories down, um, and, and what happens is metabolism will slow. Cutting calories slows the metabolism. Increasing calories raises the metabolism. So what we want to do, I would much rather eat more and train more than have to slash calories. And so right. that's another reason why I like aerobic work and why it does not it is not going to prevent you from gaining muscle mass because ultimately it's going to help your nutrient partitioning, which means more of that fuel that you eat is going to go to muscle and less to body fat. That's what you want. That's exactly what you want. Like, I don't know why we're, uh, you know, why we're beating around the bush here. 
aerobic work combined with weight training and a proper nutrition will give you exactly what you want physically. It's 100% true. I mean, you can look at it from two perspectives. You can look at videos from a decade ago of Ronnie Coleman that used to buy on DVD doing steady state, long-term cardio on his videos every day while also deadlifting 800 pounds and weighing almost 300 pounds of the leanest, most gigantic human on the planet at the time. And then when you also take a step back from that, and you look at how a lot of people are training nowadays. So you got these athletes that have switched almost exclusively to short duration and not even hit training because that that's different. That we're talking like people that think that you keep all of your sets to the ATP system, but you do repeated efforts where you don't really get into lactate and somehow that's going to be enough to create a conditioning effect or a fat burning effect. But when your adrenal release goes up, so the stress or the intensity of a movement gets too high. So like as the weight gets too high or your exertion rate or speed of contraction is too frequent and too aggressive, you will switch away from the metabolization of fatty acids and move again back towards either ATP production until it burns out or the use of glucose. And I think there's a lot of people that misinterpret that information. They don't realize that you have to keep a somewhat lower intensity level for a longer period of time to dip into that stored fatty acid pool instead of being what we think of as yep. a glucose burning athlete. So if you have yep. an athlete that's only pushing intensity, you're not dipping into that stored body fat. You're just burning the fuel that is readily available. And a lot of that fuel is coming from the muscle when it runs out of the liver. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the other, the other concept is the central nervous system. Uh, you do too much high intensity, true high intensity training. Uh, you, you burn out your CNS and you, you get weaker, you get overtrained, injured, depressed. So sometimes aerobic work is beneficial just because it, it allows you to train more often when you can't possibly go hard from a neural perspective. Right. And, and the healthier the heart is at the ability for some sustained work, but as well as these gradual and, uh, like predictable escalations of heart rate followed by restoration rates. So like, for example, you know, the argument was, well, you can get from without doing cardio, you can go into the weight room and you'll get a dramatic rise of heart rate followed by a dramatic fall of heart rate in between sets. And that is true to a degree because that's how the body works. But one of the issues where we were starting to see conversations about like left ventricle hypertrophy and power athletes and issues like this is because the heart needs to expand big and loose and contract big and loose. It Left ventricle hypertrophy causes the heart to beat really fast instead of really expansive. So because it gets hypertrophied right. and, and thick, it has to increase heart rate to get the blood to circulate instead of using like four or five big pumps to push blood through the same system at the same stroke volume, it might have to use 10 or 15. And, exactly. and, and it goes hidden in people that don't do some steady state aerobic work because they're like, yeah, my heart rate got up to 145 during my lift, but it's already back down again. And it's like, okay, so we're talking a window here of about 
you know, 90 seconds where it escalated quickly and it came down fairly quickly. That's okay. The problem is, is your rise and fall was the product of a fast beating heart to respond to blood circulation, not this expansive natural heart function that is what causes longevity as well. And you exactly. Have, and when you look, when you look at, oh, sorry. no, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. go ahead. Hit it. Cause that's, that's I, where I'm at. I was just going to say, when you look at, and this is where education is important, you have to understand what adaptation you're seeking. So there's, with conditioning workouts or energy systems training, there are adaptations that happen locally in the muscles you are contracting, and there's adaptations that happen systemically at the heart, in the blood vessels. And so one of the only ways to improve cardiac output is by low intensity activity. I mean, cardiac output work is like 120 beats per minute, which is pretty easy, but it needs to be for a sustained duration to, to achieve that benefit because you basically got to get to relax. It's almost like a, uh, I, I kind of liken it to stretching right. and to mobility. It, if you just walk into a gym cold and try to say, get your deepest range of motion, you're not able to get to it right away. It takes a little time. It takes movement to get the uh, everything to relax, to enable you to get in those deep range of motion. Same right. thing for the heart. It takes time and work to allow the heart to relax, to get that big expansion. We're talking stroke volume here. Yep. Uh, you know, stroke volume times the heart rate is that is the cardiac output. And so right. you want to keep that heartbeat roughly the same rate and work on pushing out more blood with each beat. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about stroke volume. Absolutely. And when you start to look at this, and we know that in a general preparatory environment, you're working away from general to specific as the season progresses. Progresses, And energy systems is the same way. So when we think of like an aerobic base and GPP, putting it all together now, that is your most general phase of conditioning. So it's it shouldn't be complex. It shouldn't be very uh, CNS derived. It shouldn't be very specific. Like if you're in week one of a, of a 36 week buildup for an athlete and you're trying to already replicate what they're going to be doing in their sport during day one of their GPP, you're going to start the process of exhausting that athlete, not only psychologically, but physiologically because of the repeat of pattern that they'll need to specify later during the specificity phase or peak performance phase. So when you start Conditioning. Exactly. Yeah. When you start conditioning those guys, how do you move them along? Like, let's just use a, a general topic like football. When you get them, it's off season and you start to think about putting those pieces together. What would be an introductory aerobic phase for them? Well, the first thing you have to consider is that football as done in the NCAA mm -hmm. versus football as I would do if I was, as I, if I were a private practitioner are two completely different things because the NCAA has very specific restrictions on when the coaches are allowed to have contact with the athletes. So yep. basically it was, it was kind of a clusterfuck. We would get them uh, for five weeks in January. We get them for five weeks um, or maybe it was end of January, five to eight weeks. I can't remember now. Gosh, it's been so long since I've been in the NCAA. Uh, we'd have a short block basically before spring ball. So they had to be ready to compete and practice and all that for spring ball. And they would do spring ball, they'd go home, and they'd come back for summer in which we would typically have 12 weeks to get them ready for the season. So there was no point in time where we ever had um, a lot of time to do a dedicated GPP block. So the way we would work it is once the season ended, 
did, we would send them home with GPP work, but it was not supervised by us. But basically what that would look like um, at the beginning, it would be, as I said, aerobic work heavy. And then we'd be working on all the things that they don't typically do over the course of the year that aren't the primary thing. So we're doing a lot of unilateral work in the weight room. We're doing, uh, uh, and, and that's for lower body. We're, we're strengthening the VMO. We're strengthening the hamstrings. Uh, we're working in complex patterns. So that's when I like a lot of uh, the term animal flow, I guess you could say. Yep. But different crawling patterns uh, are beneficial there to build stability uh, through the shoulders and core and everything. That's when we do like Turkish get-ups as far as training. All the weird stuff that you don't normally think of when training for football would happen during this phase. And it's, it was really about getting them bulletproof for the season. And again, aerobic work, we would typically have a couple days a week that were longer, less intensive. Um, for some linemen, it was simply go for a walk because at 330 pounds, going for a walk was going to get them at about 120 beats per minute. So go for a 30-minute walk, and we're good. For some of our skill guys, it had to be a slightly more intensive, so we would get them on um, maybe a, a spin bike or elliptical, something low impact um, to get them something low impact so that they could still go harder, but still not put too much stress on their joints. Right. And then when we got them, when we got them, when they came back and they were mandated workouts, that one we would get into our more hypertrophy and strength blocks. So they kind of had to do the foundation part on them on their own. But the way I like to do things, Derek is, and this is, I still do this today, honestly, and this is for athletes and fitness warriors alike, CrossFit included this, is a big if, if i were training any games competitors right now i would certainly do it this way i like more of a blocked system where i include all modalities of training throughout yep. the training year but then we emphasize certain elements and then we put everything else on maintenance so for example in a in a thrower or a football player we're still doing the quote-unquote gpp work during the competitive season but it's just that much lower volumes, intensities, and frequencies. It's simply maintenance. And the opposite is true, too. During the GPP phases, we may still throw in some very modest strength and power work just so we're maintaining those qualities as we work to raise the GPP. So I never, I, I try for the most part to not completely eliminate any modality, but it's more about emphasizing certain modalities while de-emphasizing others. And what is Right. What would a de-emphasis squat workout be? For de-emphasizing squats where we're just maintaining, it might be uh, three sets of two at 70% once every 14 days, which is, you would agree, would be very easy to recover from. For sure. But it's still enough to, to let the body know, hey, we still need this, right? We still need to be able to do this pattern. We still need to maintain the strength we built the previous year. And I found personally that having those maintenance workouts in there uh, boded much better than completely eliminating it, if that makes sense. Right. And it's sort of like that Charlie Francis vertical integration mentality where mm -hmm. even in the off-season or GPP phase, you're, you still keep in touch with the things that you're going to return to as the season progresses and vice versa. For those that get later in the season, say in a big man sport like football on the line where – 
you know, they don't have a lot of time left and they need to focus on power production more so than say hypertrophy. You throw in a little bit of that hypertrophy specific work at the very end of a, a power maximal strength work because it, it keeps the body in touch with those systems as you move away from them. And when you're dealing exactly. with, yeah, when you're dealing with an athlete in that situation or, or athletes in any situation, as you move through that general preparatory, just sort of close out the thoughts on it a little bit is when, when you have an athlete that you're ready to transition out of GPP and you're, you're moving into say maybe your first hypertrophy phase, or if they're a very specific body weight athlete, maybe you start with very low level hypertrophy or none at all. Like that, that's the big thing that people have to understand is even though we talk about this concept of traditional periodization as being like, typically you'll see it written in, in context as GPP hypertrophy, max strength, hypertrophy, max strength, hypertrophy, max strength, peak competitive. And you'll see these very simplistic ways to look at it, but there's a lot of athletes that can't afford hypertrophy work. They, you know, if, if you're a, yes. a marathoner or you're a weight class athlete, <laughs> you may have to go from GPP and transition that a little bit more towards CNS based work and lower volume parameters because they can't gain the weight by default, they would mess up their sport. So when you make that transition, what is maybe one or two things in that unique situation to consider that most people don't talk about? Um, honestly, it's the, the number one thing, Derek, and, and maybe you disagree. I'm not sure, but Hey, that's why we talk shop so we can learn from each other too. Yep. What I tend to say in that situation is that it's the diet that's going to determine what happens with the body composition. So, if you're doing, you're not, I wish it were this way, but I wish that merely doing a set of 10 would make you blow up like and grow like a weed, right? But the food component has to be there too. So what I'll do if I have an athlete that we're in that kind of transitional window, um, I, I may prescribe some high, quote unquote hypertrophy style training, um, maybe sets of eight to 10 with maybe more complete recoveries. And then I'll just make sure that we don't let their body weight budge. So we're monitoring monitoring their nutrition enough that they're not actually gaining scale weight. Now, what happens? Let's say, let's say they weigh, you know, 210, they need to stay at 210 and their body weight staying at 210. But let's say they do gain muscle and lose a little body fat in that 210 range. That's great. That's perfect. Okay. That's not going to create any harm whatsoever. So I tend to look more at the nutrition at that point when we talk yep. about uh, muscle mass and gains and because ultimately, uh, what you don't want is a weight class athlete to go up in overall size. If they add muscle and lose body fat at the same size, that's okay. Yep. Right? Like that's that's a win in my book. That's never going to be a bad thing. So that's what I look to as the diet. But the other thing I'll do is just overall a lower overall volume. So we know the mechanisms for hypertrophy are mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscular damage. Right. Okay. So with an athlete that needs to gain weight, I might include some components of all those. So we might be doing loaded eccentrics where we're getting a lot of muscle damage. We might also be doing um, fairly heavy sets of 10 with complete recoveries for that mechanical tension. And we may also, at the end, throw in a finisher where it's like a quick giant set for a given muscle group to really push a lot of blood and nutrients into the tissue to get that metabolic stress. So we're targeting growth all different facets for the athlete that needs to that doesn't we don't want them to gain any mass it may just be one of those three things so it, it, and most likely it's going to be either um, a heavier eccentric load to prepare them for the upcoming max strength phase so we might do uh, 
um, some tempo eccentrics there where we're going down slow and up fast with yep. weight releasers on the squat, squat or something like that. And that'll give muscle damage, but not a heck of a lot of metabolic stress. Or we may just do heavy eight to tens in the squat and not do a ton of um, hypertrophy stimulating auxiliary work. So even though they're doing work in the quote unquote hypertrophy rep range, we're not pushing them like a bodybuilder, if that makes sense. It makes a makes perfect sense. And it, and it's funny, and I'm glad that you started that that thought stream with the fact that with a lot of people, they immediately shy away from one training modality or another because they think that if they touch a barbell, that they're going to have these dramatic physical changes. Now, we know from our own experiences that there are some athletes that you have to be careful with because they're, they're one percenters and they change. But for example, I worked with uh, a marathoner getting ready for the 08 Olympics. And I actually worked with two that year. Uh, one was an alternate, one was fifth at the trials. So they did quite well. They just didn't make the team, you know. And the one girl in particular was a multi-time national champion at the NC2A level. And when we started working together, she had never really lifted weights during her running career, but she had lifted weights previous in high school. So she ran at about 116 pounds in body weight at a height of about five foot six, five foot seven, very light framed. Almost all the muscle she had had was in her legs and she had those weird genetic markers though like she could still bench press 135 pounds like very bizarre oh, yeah. yeah like bizarre genetic I, markers I've coached, I've coached i've coached distance runners and that would be a rarity in the distance running especially it, that weight <laughs> it's extremely rare right in fact i didn't believe her until she showed me so it was <laughs> what was interesting though is when we started working together her weightlifting volume went up dramatically because it went from zero to where we were at. So it, it was a hundred percent gain in weight room activity. Um, her body did change. She developed the butt. She developed hamstrings instead of being so quad dominant. And here's where it got interesting. For the first time, we talked nutrition because she'd been predominantly a carboholic as an elite level distance runner, even though she was super lean. So we're like, well, let's just make a couple easy adjustments. Let's put in some very digestive-friendly proteins, um, some very digestive-friendly fats. And I say digestive-friendly because, in all, all honesty, you don't want to give elite-level runners a lot of very complex, heavy foods that are going to make them shit their pants because that's what's going to happen. Oh, and I'm, man. And, I, and I'm not talking figuratively. <laughs> I'm talking shit their pants, <laughs> right? You don't want to see your athlete doing the green apple quick step off the track. No, that's exactly it. So these are all things you have to consider in this world. And and what was really interesting about it is when she got to the Olympic trials, maintaining a lifting program, maintaining a uh, nutrition protocol that was significantly higher in cals, significantly higher in protein, she ran a lifetime PR in a marathon at a body weight that was 105.5. So even though to the eye, she looked bigger, she looked bigger. She looked more muscular. She had, you know, I mean, she was a 115 pound girl. So she had lost, uh, you know, unless my math is dog shit, she had lost like 8% of her body mass. Right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. impressive. Yeah. So she had decreased body mass by 8%, which, yeah, as we were talking about when this started, is going to make you more flight of foot. You're going to run better if everything else stays the same. And uh, and that was a big I love one. stories like that. 
<laughs> I love stories like that where it's like because she's an elite athlete, but she was still getting like those newbie gains because she hasn't lifted in so long. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, that's exactly awesome. it. Yeah, it looks like a superstar. Well, as we transition away from GPP, is there any thoughts that you want to close that out with before we move into the next topic today? No, just I, I like to. I, no, actually, no. I think we hit the nail on the head on, on GPP. <laughs> I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> Nothing else to say. Well, this is sort of going to be an extension to GPP because it's the other side of the paradigm, and it's manipulating hormones or manipulating growth factors for the sake of of progression with the body or age related, and so peptides, which is becoming a, a more and more talked about thing in sport, even though very few of them, or even selective androgen receptor modulators, um, very few of them are actually tested for. Um, a couple that jump out off the top of my head are TB500 is actually one that they test for in the IOC USADA test for it, for example. Um, and the other one that they test is referred to typically abbreviation as GW1516 or uh, Carterine, I think, is another name for Carterine. And that one, there was actually a CrossFit Games athlete from Australia tested positive for that one. So some of them are testable. Um, I think they test for them because they've been so successful for whatever they're used for, and we'll get into that for a second. But for the most part, peptides are still this giant gray area, even though the research in human studies begun 40 years ago in Russia. So what's your take on the peptide world a little bit? You know what? Peptides for me are both exciting and scary at the same time. Right. Because they represent a lot of really benefits medically too. I mean, we're talking about things that can really potentially have some big impacts in disease. Um, And that's the... exciting part of it but the scary part is is we still don't quite know exactly how they work right like yep. they even though they even though they were created a long time ago and like you mentioned the russians you know as far as documented um peer-reviewed study in humans they are very much in their infancy so very much when we talk about these drugs most of them have only been tested on animals and that's kind of where we're at right now with a lot of Yep. Is they've tested them, they, they've, they've shot up their rats and said, okay, this is kick-ass in rats. Now we need to go and try it on humans, okay? So that, that's kind of where we're at. So we're, we're on the cusp of what could potentially be some pretty groundbreaking shit in the medical industry and in the performance industry. Um, athletes are always kind of ahead of the curve in terms of accelerating recovery. And this is one of those things, one of the primary benefits of doing a GPP phase is to enhance your recovery. Well, all of these... Uh, chemicals are capable of enhancing recovery, and that's why they're used. Athletes will always try to find an edge, and there will always be some uh, um, biochemist scientist that will help these athletes get an edge. You look at testosterone, right? Um, There are literally thousands upon thousands of ways to modify the testosterone molecule, and yet there's only they can only test for, what, 400 right now? As right. of right now, I'm not sure. It's right. con- it's constantly being updated, but all it takes is that a scientist will get with an athlete. A lot of money will be exchanged. They will modify the testosterone molecule in a way that hasn't been done before. That athlete will use it and win lots of competitions. Um, of course, they have to have the sport skill too, but they'll win lots of competitions until the chatter gets out. Then other scientists, the good guys, quote unquote, good guys, 
will find a way to test for it. They'll test for it, and then they have to make the next drug. The athlete goes to find the next new drug, and that's kind of where um, where doping is at this point. It's like the the guy that can bypass the test is the one that has the most money and the best scientist in his back pocket. Well, so you, you know what's interesting dr- about oh, that, Ryan. You know what's interesting about that. Before we get into it, because I think he hit the nail right on the head with a couple comments. Like, for one, okay, so the guy that was the head of USADA for the United States that's now working for the UFC, Novisky, I think his name is, or something like this. So yep. he's the he's the one that they hired to sort of put drug testing into the UFC. Obviously, it's resulted in a complete change in the structure of, of mixed martial arts because it did have a little bit of a, of a sport performance uh, issue there in the, in the uh, aid department. But he goes on and was talking about John Jones most recently and his use of Turnable. Okay. So for those that don't know much about much when it comes to the performance enhancement side of steroid use in sports, Turnable is an old DDR drug or what we think of as an old East German anabolic. And it was created and given to the East German athletes back in the seventies as a part of a state run drug program that was written about in the book Thrown Free by Wolfgang Schmidt and when he was a part of that system. And it was a very powerful and extremely effective oral anabolic androgenic steroid. Now, what's really interesting about this coming out with the UFC and, and John Jones apparently testing positive for this is one, it's an archaic steroid. So the fact that it's been around forever means that it's been tested forever. Now, here's where it gets interesting, okay? And this goes back to your point about what they can and cannot test for. So hypothetically, if I went back to my athletic days and I could get my hands on oral turnable and I was to have used it as a hammer thrower, based on what we were told in the early 2000s and late 90s by like our drug testing agencies is an oral steroid like turnable will be in your system typically 14 to 36 days before none of the metabolites will be out of your system. That's what they told us, right? And so back then, you're like, holy shit, never take oral turnable. You'll test positive, right? <laughs> and and so it's off mm-hmm. the radar. So nobody was using it. And then all of a sudden in 2018 or 2017, wow, that's weird. Oral turnable shows up in some positive tests. And it showed up in some other sports too. And then you have a guy like Novinsky who's on the Joe Rogan show who's an expert behind the scenes in drug testing, drops the ball and says that the shit clears in 24 hours. And <laughs> right. And, and so it's like, Oh, okay. That's interesting. Fuck. If I had known that 10 years ago, all of a sudden everybody would have been using turnable, but nobody was because they thought it was like D ball or Anadrol or any of these other highly androgenic, uh, uh, alkaline, alpha alkaline orals that, it took a while to get out of the system. And and now you're realizing that, oh, maybe it's not as precise as people have led us to believe. Maybe it's easier. It's not. To, it's not, right? Go for it. Well, yeah. And especially you take something like growth hormone. Um, growth hormone, it is vi- it's pulsatile in nature, right? Yep. So the way growth hormone works in the body is uh, you secrete it and it spikes in the bloodstream and then it goes away. So it's like unless you – like and theoretically, unless you took it and had a drug test in like an hour after you took it, no one would ever know, and it'd be hard to test for. Yeah. Now, there's a you know the, as as the athletes get better at masking and hiding this, the tests also get better. So now they're 
they're they're extending detection times of certain compounds now. So something that used to be, you know, twenty four hours detection time now they can pick it up for a month or so on a drug test or maybe two months. So they're you know science is always advancing. That's not going to change. Right. And peptides are one of those things that um, is advancing. Now here's my number one biggest. Well, there's two there's two big things about peptides that I, I don't like. Um, and, and why I'm always cautious about using them. I have used some before, um, yep. but I, I don't, I don't currently right now. And that for a couple of reasons, one is science again, doesn't exactly know how they work. It's still somewhat in their infancy in terms of human studies. So right. while there's some stuff coming out now with some of the peptides that have been around, um, that are showing that they might be, um, pro carcinogenic. So they're cancer forming cancer causing mm-hmm. or they actually stimulate the growth of cancer cells that's not a good thing all right we don't want to mess with anything that does that um the other issue and probably the biggest issue is the sourcing issue so yes. right now peptides are not they are not drugs in the u.s they're simply uh research chemicals because they're being researched by laboratories so if you get them you can possess them they're not illegal um they're not human use but they're not illegal to have so basically with that they're not a dea scheduled drug so what that means is anybody and their brother that's looking to make a buck off the peptide industry is now selling peptides so what you're getting uh is that the sourcing for a quality source of these peptides is nearly impossible unless you have access to third-party lab testing or your own chem lab to make your own stuff otherwise you're just getting potentially larry's bath to blend you know what i mean and we don't yep. we don't know what larry's done in that bathtub absolutely and so that's probably my biggest red yeah it's my biggest red flag with the peptides right now is you don't know that you're getting what the label says you're getting and, and that was the same issue that happened with the homebrew anabolic dilemma where mm-hmm. people were taking anabolics that weren't from a pharmacy you know they were getting them from somebody that and people this is hard to wrap your head around people were Mass producing, say, testosterone at such a high level on the black market in the mid to late 90s to keep up with the demand before, you know, overseas uh, access became so easy that they would they would mix up like a, a bathtub worth of testosterone injectable. And people are like, wow, that's a lot. And I'm like, no, no, they literally mixed it in their bathtub. That's where they mix the ingredients, right? And so when some of these underground labs got busted in the late 90s, early 2000s, and and the news came out that they were using, you know, solvents and oils and shit like this and putting it in the bathtub of, of their house, you sort of have to take a step back and be like, oh, wow, I was taking the human performance equivalent of a meth house product. And it's like, yes, yes, yes you were. You were putting the steroid equivalent of methamphetamines into your body. So congratulations on that giant cyst you had cut out of your ass and you couldn't figure out why. <laughs> and, exactly. And so when you look at peptides, you're making a really good point because it still is an underground thing. Like um, I only know of one clinic in my entire area of Colorado that gets prescription grade uh, Semerellin and our yep. modified GF, right? GFR. So – when you look at that, it's it's a lot harder to get. Um, and that one in particular uh, has been around a while. They've been using it in age-related clinics for quite some time. But again, 
it's expensive when you start looking at pharmaceutical qualities as well as prescription-based peptide use. Yes, completely. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of those. We, we can just dive right in there, the Semarelin. So there's a bunch of different ones with different names, GHRP6, GHRP2, IPAMARELIN, Semarelin, CJC1295. And the idea behind all these is very similar, um, is that you force the pituitary to, you know, you're basically creating more growth hormone and secreting. So, so, so they're growth hormone secretagogues. So growth, human growth hormone is regenerative in nature. It restores cartilage. It restores joints. Um, it helps with lipolysis, so fat loss. Um, it, it basically releases uh, uh, fatty acids from fat cells on your body into the bloodstream. So that's why a lot of bodybuilders will use these prior to doing cardio. Yep. They will release it into the bloodstream and they'll do cardio to actually burn it off. Um, and there's a lot of those around. You know, I haven't messed. I, I did try the GHRPs at one point. They Honestly, they're a pain in the ass. Like, first of all, they have to stay cold, so they got to be in a fridge somewhere. Yeah. Um, you have to reconstitute them really carefully. The powder is not very stable. Yep. So you're sh- you have to basically you have to shoot bacteriostatic water into the vial with the powder, and you actually can't even shoot it directly at the powder because it's too unstable. Um, it, yeah, the, the dosing schedule is impractical, like three to four times a day, all in an empty stomach. It's like I, I think I did one one vial of. You know, it ended up being like a week's worth, and I was like, screw this. This is too much work. Yeah, um, like you almost but, have to be on an intermittent fasting routine to properly yeah, use some of the I, the peptides. Yeah, so I really didn't see much out of that. Of course, again, like I said, I did it for maybe a week or two. It was just – and again, I may not have had a good source. Um, I yep. went with kind of a uh, – I talked to someone, it, you know, about a research lab, but it, it doesn't mean it was good. But right. um yeah, so I didn't notice anything with that, but those are getting real popular um, because of the age-related decline in growth hormone secretion. Um, every year, every every year and every decade, obviously after the age of thirty, you decrease the amount of growth hormone you secrete. And so it's one of those things. Um, real growth hormone is common in anti-aging uh, clinics, but it's super expensive, and um, the FDA is starting to kind of frown on its use as an anti-aging um, drug. Right. So that's, that's why these peptides are starting to get more and more, um, attention popular with those clinics. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that's one for, for wound healing. It may be a good one or if you're injured, it may be a good one or just looking for general recovery. It could be any of those could be good to use. Yep. Um, one that really fascinates me is the carterine. Um, right. The, the, it's all the, all these peptides have letters, numbers. It's like GWO one Oh five Oh one six seven W whatever. But yep. carterine, C-A-R-D-A-R something, carterine. Yep. What's pretty fascinating about this is um, its ability to increase HDL or your good cholesterol. So yes. a lot of high-performance athletes, especially ones that use um, performance-enhancing anabolics or androgenic drugs, will have a decrease in HDL. Or if, or even if you're just on TRT and you have uh, an anti-estrogen like a Remedex or an astrozole prescribed for you, your HDL will go to gutter. And so carterine is good for boosting um, HDL, but it's also one of the reasons it's banned by like CrossFit and, and it's to, uh, banned by WADA and all that now is because it can boost endurance. Like people yes. are actually like going harder and faster and longer in the gym. So basically like the, the science behind it, I won't bore you with that, but it's a PPAR agonist. So Stands for peroxisome peripheral activated receptors. Sometimes I feel like science 
just just like long names to sound important, but right for anyway, sure. If it, it's the alpha version of this PPAR agonist, so this actually regulates the expression of your very DNA in your heart, in your liver, in your skeletal muscle, in your kidneys, and so all those things are going to be functioning better theoretically yep. on harder brain. So if your heart and your kidneys and your liver and your muscles are working better, you're going to perform better. You're going to be leaner. Your blood profiles, the lipids are going to look better. You're going to kick more ass in the gym. Yeah. Um, so it's a really exciting one. But again, I'm just waiting because I don't know. I, I haven't tried it. I'm waiting because I want to see what the nasty effects are. So far, they haven't found any. But yep. so far, it's only really been tested in animals. So, yeah. And you know what's interesting about that one is – so I had a buddy that decided to – he used it for – if I remember correctly, used it for 80 days-ish between blood works, almost a full 90. Now, the recommended dose that you'll often see in the bro forums is somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 milligrams a day. Uh, you know, you hear bodybuilders taking 30 milligrams, et cetera, whatever. Um, this guy's pretty conservative. He used 7.5 milligrams daily, right? And he uh, had blood work done. And then had his blood work done 90 days later, roughly. And he wanted to see if it actually had an effect on his blood work. Uh, and, and so I got to see it. And, it. and it was pretty interesting. I learned a lot from it. So using, you know, a third of the dose that bodybuilders would use, because this guy's not a bodybuilder, he dropped his total cholesterol by 24%. Jeez. <laughs> okay. So I was, I, uh, and this, he changed nothing in his diet nothing. Yeah. He didn't take supplements outside of this, nothing. The guy was just like, I'm just going to throw it into my lifestyle and see what happens. His triglycerides dropped from 225 to 147 and didn't oh, change. Man. Okay. Didn't change anything. The one that was interesting. So obviously he's had a big reduction in total cholesterol. The other thing that was interesting is his HDL went from 34 to 41. So that's in range. <laughs> it's in range. Um, yeah. It's, so yeah. I, so it had this, Normal. yeah, and I think he bought it in the UK. It cost him peanuts, right? So, and GW1516, a carterine, is a, is a selective androgen receptor modulator by label, but it's still not really that either. Right. And what right. was interesting about what I saw from his blood work is you're, you're talking about taking uh, – a product that hopefully there's no negative side effects, long-term side effects. We still don't know cost a fraction of the medication costs to treat cholesterol issues, a fraction, right. you know, right. you know, 90 days, I think cost them somewhere in the neighborhood of about 25 bucks and, uh, <laughs> and completely reset his lipid profile. Completely. Yeah, something to be said for that. And yeah. you know, the drug companies, the drug companies I'm sure are going to try to jump on it and bury it if they can <laughs> it, absolutely or, or, pat, or patent it or they'll or they'll take that one study from the original carterine studies where rats developed cancer cells when you find out that they were taking somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 times the recommended daily dose so basically they supersaturated rats and and some of them got cancer. I, I if I remember the statistical correlation to cuz I I wanted to see okay what if I took that amount. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of like 3 grams for my body weight a day. 
So if I took 3,000 oh, wow. milligrams of carterine a day, there was a potentiation for cancer formation when we know that for someone my size, the dose is only 20 milligrams. Yeah, well, that's just anything, right? Like right. anything in excess, like you can hey, drink I, too much water too. I can, I can smoke five packs of smokes a day if you want me to. It's probably not going to have a good result on my health. Yeah, totally. Well, right. like I said, you can, you can die from water if you drink yep. enough. You know, yeah. So anyway, man, that's nuts. Um, Definitely interesting. Yeah. So some, there's another combo that I've really got my eye on. Um, and it's two of them. Typically they're recommended to be used together. Again, recommended by whom it's, it's, you know, the bro scientists or the real scientists that have done it on the rats. Yep. But um, thymus, and beta, thymus and beta 4 yeah, is big the name of one. Some people call it TB500. TB500 is a fraction of thymus and beta 4, but thymus and beta 4 is the big one. Yep. And then BPC157. And basically, um, those two, BPC157 is, has been used in rat studies for wound healing, um, like rapid wound healing, which is yep. pretty fascinating to me, especially from a joint health standpoint. And then the thymosin beta-4, what's fascinating, not only does it lower inflammatory cytokines, so it actually brings down inflammation, it matures stem cells, which that, so in my head, I'm thinking, man, maybe some sort of combination. Once my, you know, for those that don't know, I'm, I'm at some point, I'll be staring down the barrel of potentially a hip and a shoulder replacement. So it's like once it gets to that point, I think my last-ditch effort will be a combination combination of stem cells and thymus and beta-4 and BPC-157 right. directly in the joint to try to see if we can grow some new cartilage and, and heal. Um, there, there was a guy at my gym, and this is this is uh, was seen on an MRI. So he tore his triceps, and he tore it in the muscle belly, which, if you know anything about uh, um, orthopedics, that's like the worst thing that could happen. Like if you tear a muscle, like a hard, uh, like a, a big tear, you yep. want you would rather it tear at the tendon because then they can reattach the tendon to the bone. That's much easier. When it tears in the muscle belly, you just have to. I mean, you're just screwed. Like they can't really repair it, right? And it never is going to quite be the same again. You're always you're going to have nasty scar tissue if it even um, comes close to closing up. But anyway, guy at my gym, he had torus triceps in muscle belly, and had an MRI, and sure enough, there was a huge hole right in the in the lateral head of the triceps. Oof. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to try TD500, which is not even the full thymus and beta 4. So a yep. partial fraction of it. But he got it because he, he uh, owned horses. Okay. So he, he was into like race horses. And TB500 has been around in the equine community for a long time right. um, in, in race horses for healing because race horses are very prone to osteoarthritis. And so it's one of those things when you have a money winning horse, um, you know, the more, obviously the more you race it, the more you win, but then the more you race it, the more likely it is to break down and get arthritis and then, then it's done. Right. Right. So this TB 500 has been around in the racing community forever because it was prolonging the careers of these racehorses. So he had some, he had heard about, and this was, mind you, this was probably what, 2008, I would say it's been at least seven years ago. That, right. this, that this event occurred. So it was well before peptides were a buzzword on the internet, right? Yep. yep. And so I'd never heard of it. When he said it, I was like, I'd never heard of it. So he did TB500 and the hole completely closed up in eight weeks with minimal scar tissue. 
And wow. actually the orthopedic doctor sent him another MRI and could not believe it. Like he was completely healed back bench pressing over 500 raw again, eight weeks after a big tear. I mean, he had a, it was a centimeter and a half tear was the width of the hole. That's huge, right? That's almost an inch. Yep. And eight weeks completely healed. So it, that's, that's exciting to me. That's one of those it things is. that I'm just like, man, well, you know what? Like one, once, I, I'm cautious about all this stuff just because I, I don't I'm, – I'm kind of a wuss about, like, health stuff. Like, I want to, like, do something that's going to give me cancer. But at the same time, it's like if my pain gets so bad where it's like I'm st- getting ready to go to the doctor and get it replaced, I will definitely do thymosin beta 500 or thymosin beta 4, BBC and all that stuff before a replacement. He gets to the surgery point. And it's interesting yeah. because when I had the non-closing wound on my Achilles – I was getting pretty desperate when I was about a year and a half into having an open wound on my leg, like what you would see, <laughs> right? Like what you'd see more in a diabetic situation. We were sort of out of options because they didn't really know what to do. So it, it was getting to the point at the wound clinic in Denver where they were going to potentially just cut out the back of my leg. So remove the entire bottom half of uh, my Achilles tendon, get rid of it completely, make the foot uh, sort of, uh, dead for lack of a better word until the wound on the leg healed then you know six to eight months later they would go in take the holocaust longus off my big toe the the ligament reconstruct uh, but a small and very weak achilles tendon out of that and so for the rest of my life i would have the ligament from my big toe operating my foot and so it was getting fuck that. Yeah, fuck that right so it was getting to those conversations and I, and i was getting desperate and i started doing research and so I've been, you know, like uh, 12 plus months, you know, more like a year and a half with an open wound. And uh, I went with the TB500 and I went with a, uh, a pharmaceutical grade of Tremel injectable. Um, so like the cream you can buy at Whole Foods or wherever, you can buy the injectable as well. Most other countries aren't so needle phobic as North Americans. And so yeah, I I've went- I've used that before. I yeah. used that after one of my surgeries. It works yeah, really awesome. well. Anyway, so. I was using a combination of injectable Tremel and injectable TB500. The Tremel I used more often than the TB500 just because of the nature of it. But basically, I went through 10 grams um, or 10,000 milligrams of TB500 over the course of two weeks. And I would mix the TB500 peptide with my injection of Tremel. And every single day for two weeks... Um, I would inject anywhere from uh, 5 to 15 uh, injections into or around the wound on my leg. Now, it sounds horrific. Visually, it probably was. I have so much nerve damage, it di- I didn't really feel any of that injection. Um, what was really interesting is at the end of that two weeks, I had for the first time in a year and a half a complete wound closure. Complete. Um, and we're, we're talking like a wound that was sitting at about a centimeter and a half to two centimeters width. So three quarters of an inch in width and another in the neighborhood of about two inches in length. So a large wound that was open on the back of my leg and it was deep. It was, uh, had a depth of a quarter of an inch. So when that wound finally closed, the head of the wound, wound center that I was attending in Denver, he couldn't believe it. He, he couldn't figure out how a wound went from a year of stagnation to closure. And so I explained it to him. And at first he was very reluctant. 
But then he's like, you know what? You got to write this down for me. So I wrote down what I did and he took it. Has he used it since? I don't know. But I can tell you from a dire straight situation that that was the only thing that I changed after a year and a half to get a wound that would not heal to heal. So there's something to it. remember that. Yeah. And then I had a secondary experience with the BPC. So I had a shoulder injury that would not heal. It was getting to the point where when I woke up in the morning, the first thing I felt was shoulder pain and and substantial. Like if I went to move, I had to use my other hand and hold my arm against my body to roll out of bed. And I could not for the life of me figure out what was happening. Um, And if I warmed up, if I stretched, if I did anything, the pain was always there. Um, It worked on my neck, did all the traditional modality stuff. So I was like, you know what? I I can't afford a shoulder surgery right now. Uh, Time-wise, I I just can't do it. So I bought one bottle of BPC-157, constituted it, and I did, like, even though they say it's systemic, I didn't really think about it that way. I injected where I had the hot spot on my shoulder where the pain was really bad. Within four, uh, and I don't want to say this like some medical claim. This is just a bro talking for a second. So within starting BPC, within my fourth injection, the shoulder pain was gone. Two months later, I have yet to have a return of chronic shoulder pain that was actually starting to affect my life. The only thing that I changed once again was the introduction of BPC-157. So I it is, right? And I don't know what the negative long-term consequence is. It's something that I'm aware of and I'm definitely – I'm not a, I'm not a cowboy about it, right? Like I'm not one of these guys that just is like, ah, fuck it. It's going to be, it's going to be, but you know what? I look around the world and I look at the water that we're drinking and the food that we're eating and, and, and the pollution that I have to deal with in some of these countries that are not America. And I'm like, you know what? If BPC 157 is the catalyst, ah, there was no way for me to know, right? Like because of all the other yeah, well, toxic shit that I have to spew out of my system every single day, you know? Well, and you know, the dev- the devil is in the dose. It's just like anything else. Um, there's a huge, there's probably clinically speaking, a huge difference in negative health benefits in someone that takes one vial maybe once every two years when he has a crazy pain or injury right. versus someone that takes year round all the time every day right, right. and it's like right. one of those things that it's it's there's there's a huge difference and so you have to look at it in context you know for how you're using it you were you were at the point where there's surgery or peptides so you went with peptides and argue i'm gonna i mean i'm gonna argue that you probably made the right decision because surgery once they open the joint up it's never the same never never um ever. Never, because because a joint's not supposed to be exposed to air, right? You open it up, and I mean that just the mere act of surgery stimulates the progression of osteoarthritis. So it's and, like, and just the risk yeah, nowadays. I, I don't blame you. Yeah, and just the risk nowadays of surgical biofilm that forms on a on a structure during surgery, and you get a chronic infection for the rest of your life. And, yep. and it's absolutely it's it's real. It, it's absolutely real, and. 
it's uh, having dealt with, uh, you know, chronic infection and chronic wound care. The one thing I can tell people that have had orthopedic surgery, orthopedic surgery sucks. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. It fucking sucks. And I've had a lot of them. You've had a lot of them. But you know what fucking sucks worse? Chronic infection of a wound that won't heal. It's so much yeah. worse, so much worse. Like people don't understand. Like when you see these guys dealing with uh, an infection after surgery and you're like, well, what's the big deal? It's just red and it's just swollen, you know, or you get an open wound, God forbid, or a MRSA. When you're in that situation and you're, and you're in that world of medicine, the orthopedic surgeon, he doesn't, you're done with him. So like all your rehab, all your progressions, all that stuff is put on a back burner. When you develop a, a wound that won't heal following surgery, that is the only thing that the hospital is concerned about. They don't give a shit about your Achilles tendon anymore. They don't care about your ACL surgery. They don't care because until that wound heals, yeah. they believe that your health and welfare and life is in harm's way. If you got a hole in your body that and it is, it is, yeah, you're in trouble, yeah. deep, deep trouble. Oh. And so yeah, it's funny. I just on the last podcast, I told you about the guy that I had uh, that had he had back surgery and immediately got MRSA. I had to have another surgery and then had all kinds of like paralysis of the pelvic floor after that surgery when they cut the MRSA out. Yep. It's like infection is no joke when it's inside your body. <laughs> it is no joke at all. And so we've, we've been cranking away here pretty hard. Um, just before I let you go today, the one thing that I just wanted to close out on was any last thoughts. And, and I think we, we got another topic we were going to hit today, but we'll probably save it to next time we get the chat. But is there any last peptides that you're curious about before we close up today? Um, you know, I'm, they're not technically peptides, but I am very curious about a lot of the, uh, selective androgen receptor modulators. So basically, um, there's a new class of drugs that, um, they are attempting to separate the anabolic and the androgenic, um, sides of steroids to make pure anabolic. So for anyone that doesn't know, anabolic is tissue growth. Androgenic is more male-like characteristics and all anabolic steroids testosterone has a certain ratio of anabolism to androgenicity and and that that can be debated you know to the end but um they're attempting to make these drugs that strictly work in an anabolic fashion so things these things would help with wound healing it would help with muscle mass help with lean body uh lean body mass growth and fat loss but without impacting your hairline without um without uh, enlarging your clit if you're a female things like that so um yep pretty fascinating again they're new as well my my biggest curiosity about them is their the ability to use them alongside trt to potentially reduce the dosage of trt um the testosterone replacement we talked last time i'm i'm currently taking uh testosterone replacement at a dose of 160 milligrams a week and i'm i, I would be very curious to know if i could get away with even less like maybe half of half of the dose and then absolutely supplement with some of the SARMs and see any effect. And the research um, is fascinating. There's, there's some that are showing promise like uh, uh, the rad 140 or the octarine, but you know, again, it's the same issue with the peptides is they're very much in their infancy. Uh, a lot of them have only been tested on animals and we just don't know how they work yet. You know, it's, it's, yep. it's taking a lot of gym bros trying shit out <laughs> to really kind of carve a path. And you know, gym bros get a hard time. 
uh, for some of their quote unquote bro science. But without them, it's like we almost wouldn't know what to study in real science. You know what I mean? Like it, they're we rely I, on these meat sticks. We rely yeah. on these meat sticks to provide us a hypothesis that we can actually go test in a lab. Well, I like to think of them as basically barbell astronauts, right? So we got <laughs> – And so as they boldly go where nobody's gone before, I sit back and watch because (laughs) I'm curious to see, you know, who the next, you know, John Glenn of the weight room is that discovers that, holy shit, (laughs) you know, this, uh, this product is, it's the key to our future. And and fuck, we got to have somebody, you know, somebody had to fly the X-wing for the first time. So it's, um. And, you know, and I'm probably not going to sign up for the job, but I'm also not a test pilot. Right. So there's there's people out there that like to walk that uh, that thin line. And and I'm glad they do it. I'm glad that I can learn from it. But I think the big takeaway for those that are listening is, like you say, you know, this isn't tried and true science, no matter what the Internet makes you believe or how good a Web page has been put together with the peptides for sale, it's still not medicine. It may be medicine 10 years from now, but it's not medicine today. And people, I think, should be extremely cautious or, in my case, extremely desperate for uh, a solution to a, a serious problem before they just immediately jump into the peptide and SARM race, if if you want to think of it that way, you know? I agree 100%. That's perfect. Perfect way to put it. All right. Well, again, as always, a completely enlightened conversation. You know, for those that have been listening, you know, we hammered out some GPP concepts. Uh, in the future, we're going to move, as you can imagine, towards hypertrophy methods, maximal strength methods. Uh, Ryan and I are going to talk in the future about programming for different sports. We'll, we'll touch again on topics like peptides, PEDs, growth hormones, um, how they benefit, how they don't. But as always, this is where it's our opportunity to sort of get into the nuts and bolts of the human performance side. So thanks again for another awesome hour of knowledge. Thanks for having me, Derek. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Ecobolic Radio. For more information about upcoming guests and episodes, Please follow Derek Witzke on his Instagram or at DerekWitzke.com. 